Good morning, dear Intriguer. We did it. It's finally Oppenheimer Day. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder Helen Zhang to discuss the storming of Sweden's embassy in Baghdad and Helen's recent trip to Taiwan. It's all coming up. Morning, Helen. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Ethan. I'm finally back. I've made it back on the show. Yeah, long time no see. How you been? I've been okay. You know, it's summer in DC, so I'm just surviving. Just staying inside as best you can. Yeah, same here. Right, exactly. So, Helen, it's another week and another chance for us to talk about, I, I think, one of the great geostrategic powerhouses of this century, a true juggernaut amongst geopolitical peons. I mean, we're, we're not talking about China, as many people would, would think we are. We're not talking about the U.S., or Russia today, we are, of course, as you know, talking about Sweden. <laughs> Sweden. Okay. Well, not <laughs> quite the name you think of when you think about great powers, more like IKEA, random names of furnitures. But actually, I think the last time Sweden was listed as a geopolitical quote-unquote powerhouse was that probably the what, early 18th century. Yeah, yeah, the old Swedish empire. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't think the people <laughs> of Sweden would take any offense to me saying that because I think you know, low geopolitical profile is totally by design by them. So just to underscore this point, right, the last time, as you rightly said, Sweden was directly involved in any war was back in 1814, which means it's maintained a policy of neutrality for a longer period of time than, you know, the famously neutral Switzerland. I mean, it's something that we actually forget about. Um, and it's reinvested that money that it would have otherwise spent on the military to actually build a world-class social welfare system complete with universal healthcare and free college education lucky Swedes. But, you know, as you know really well, that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has started to shift Sweden's priorities. And now they're dead set on relinquishing that policy of neutrality and plan to join NATO. Right. And that bid, as we know, has been held up by Turkey for over a year. We got a signal from Turkish President Erdogan last week at the NATO summit in Vilnius that Sweden's bid might move forward. Then he sort of walked that back. Can you just briefly remind us why Sweden's membership has been delayed for so long to begin with. Yeah, I mean, the key reason I think that Turkey has listed is their concerns over Sweden's apparent harboring of Kurdish activists, which is a group that Turkey considers to be terrorists. Um, Turkey's also expressed frustration over an embargo on Swedish arms sales to Turkey. And some analysts have said that Turkey is just primarily using the leverage it has over Sweden's bid to extract more concessions from the US, which, of course, you would do that. Um, and primarily that's in the form of F-16 fighter jets, which the U.S. has refused to sell to Turkey for several years now. But hey, Ethan, another thing that Turkey has sort of fixated on, and the reason that it says it agreed to Finland's NATO bid before it agreed to Sweden's, is concerns over apparent acts of Islamophobia by Swedish citizens and lawmakers, mm. which is not great. Right. And these acts, you know, they're, they're primarily Quran burnings, they're not, they're not entirely new in Sweden, which we have to say has struggled a bit, as, as much of the Western world has, with managing a small but, but vocal strain of Islamophobia for a few decades. But now, as Sweden looks to take on you know, a bigger place in the world, these acts are no longer isolated inside of, you know, it's not just about the Swedish politics, they're, they're taking on 
a broader geopolitical significance. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw how powerful the emotions around these issues are just a few days ago when like hundreds of protesters in Iraq stormed the Swedish embassy in Baghdad and ransacked and set fire to the building in anticipation of a planned Quran burning in Stockholm on Thursday. Um, I mean, the pictures from that from Twitter seem pretty horrific. Uh, and the protests were furious that Swedish authorities didn't do more to stop it. So it's worth noting that Swedish authorities sometimes have tried to stop these Quran burnings and have been rebuffed by the country's courts on free speech grounds. And that's beyond the diplomatic fallout. Of course, Iraq is expelled Sweden's ambassador, who was probably thrilled to leave at that stage, and then pulled their own top diplomat from their embassy in Stockholm. But I think before we continue, it's also worth saying, as Swedish dip- officials did on Thursday, that this was a serious failure on the part of the Iraqi security, which is explicitly responsible for protecting diplomatic staff inside the country. Right. And Sweden was certainly not happy about how this all went down. I mean, I guess the last question here, Helen, is what does this mean for Sweden's bid to join NATO? Yeah, Uh, I mean, that's really the live question that everyone in NATO, I think, is watching closely as well. Um, Look, I think the answer is pretty ambiguous before these events took place on Thursday morning. I mean, Erdogan said at the NATO summit in Vilnius that he would clear the path for Sweden to join, but then backtracked a couple of days later and said it was up to Turkey's parliament now to vote on the matter later this fall. Um, So look, that could merely be a formality, or it could be Erdogan's way of offloading responsibility for an even longer delay, or even an out right refusal of Sweden's bid. So so really, TLDR, we don't know, right? But what we do know is that several influential Muslim-majority countries have been quite vocal about the Quran burnings in Sweden. And we know that Erdogan has tried to act as a rallying force amongst these countries and was even touring the Gulf earlier this week to strengthen ties with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and doing some, you know, maybe duty-free shopping along the way. But look, (laughs) as this issue gets more and more heated, I think Sweden's NATO chances might just become slimmer and slimmer. Today's episode is brought to you by Masterworks. When incredibly rare and valuable assets come up for sale, it's typically the wealthiest people that end up taking home the spoils, but not with Masterworks. Their $1 billion collection includes works by greats like Banksy, Picasso, and Basquiat, all of which are collectively owned by everyday investors like you. So when Masterworks sells a painting, you make the profit. Check out the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So Helen, you're new to this new segment where each of us share a story that may have either flown under the radar or that we think deserves a little extra TLC. So if you would, allow me to, to kick it off. Yeah, I think generally it's called a john isn't it? I mean, like it's sort of John pontificating on random things. But yes, please now do, that, now that John's <laughs> Now that John's not here, we can call it that. He gets very upset by that name. But I, I was actually thinking Holonalog could work. Uh, yeah, we can we can really test the boundaries here. Oh, I love it. Over to you, Ethan. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Before I put my foot in my mouth any further. Well, Helen, I've been completely transfixed by some diplomatic drama between the UK, the EU, and Argentina. So mm. the background here is that the UK has claimed a, a small archipelago off the Patagonian coast of South America since 1833. I call it a small archipelago because the name is what's at the core of this dispute. Right. The UK calls this archipelago the Falkland Islands, but Argentina, just 300 miles away, 
has also claimed the islands and calls them Las Islas Malvinas. Uh, and the two even Great pronunciation. You know, thank you very much. That's uh, a yeah. shout out to our uh, <laughs> editor in chief, JD, for the Spanish lessons. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the UK and Argentina, you'll, you, you might remember this. Uh, they fought a, a brief war over the islands in 1982. I don't remember that, Ethan. I wasn't born then. I okay. just want that stated for the record. <laughs> it's on the record. Well, <laughs> okay, well, we'll go back to the present. Fast forward 41 years, and these islands are still disputed. Uh, and then on Wednesday, uh, the EU somewhat inexplicably dove into the dispute, signed a joint declaration with a group of Latin American countries where they used the term Islas Malvinas uh, instead of Falklands. Oh, wow. Shots fired. So how did the UK respond? Well, OK, so let's first we'll, we'll talk about Argentina's response, which was totally and completely overjoyed. They didn't try to hide that. They went so far as to call it. Uh, quote, diplomatic triumph. (laughs) And on the UK side, utter consternation, confusion, lots of anger that the EU would endorse Argentina's position on a dispute in any way uh, whatsoever. I mean, remember, Argentina and the UK fought fought a war over these islands. uh, So it's really sensitive territory for British politicians. But I think what makes this little dust up so intriguing and, and the part that I'm fixating on and then I imagine a lot of people in the UK will fixate on is a quote from an EU official who said, and this is a quote, the UK is not part of the EU. They're upset by the use of the word Malvinas. If they were in the EU, perhaps they would have pushed back against it. (laughs) Oh, that is a good burn. I mean, as far as diplomatic burns go, that's got to be creme de la creme. Talk about holding a grudge. Wow. The, The Brexit jokes will never get old. I don't imagine. No. Uh, yeah. Not not a great sign for Global Britain. No. Hashtag Global Britain. Hashtag Global Britain. <laughs> uh, let's get that trending on Twitter. So, Helen, let's move on because I know you've got something just as, if not more intriguing that you want to talk about. Yeah, that's right. And that is wargaming in Taiwan. You know, not something that I think I would talk about every day, but it's certainly been a, an interesting time. So, I mean, as some of you know from tomorrow's newsletter as well, I headed over to Taiwan and participated in some wargaming games uh, and also learned a lot about the country's tech sector and visited the place where Ghibli's, uh, well, Studio Ghibli's animation film Spirited Away was actually based Whoa. on. So that was really cool. That is really cool. Actually, before we continue on the war game piece, Spirited Away, I was so terrified. I I think that movie came out when I was four years old. I was so terrified (laughs) in the movie theater watching that movie that I started crying and had to leave the theater. My whole family missed the movie because of my my outburst. I was terrified of the flying pigs. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, fair enough, right? Even just, like, people turning into pigs, right? It was actually that particular yes. scene. So this town is called Jilfen, and that is where that, you know, the sort of scene where the, the little girls, spoiler alert, little girls' parents turn into pigs because they ate so much from the, the street stalls. So that's uh, where the night markers are based on. That's, uh, okay. But, yeah. I, I thought they were flying. My, my memory is deceiving me. I still refuse to watch the movie to this day, it's, 20, 20 I mean, plus years later. That's trauma right there. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about this offline. <laughs> okay, well, I suggest we do. Anyways, uh, on the war game piece, Helen, what the heck is a war game? Well, Ethan, look, the details vary, but really war games are basically like tabletop exercises that simulate aspects of warfare to try and explore future possible scenarios. So these could be like analysts or people who are working in the defense establishments, former military folks who gather around and think about 
if war happened tomorrow, what would that look like? Right. So some games literally involve standing around a big map and moving pieces around like a board game or in a World War II movie. Um, and then others are sort of like more simulated uh, digital war games that I think are a little bit more high tech. Are, is it, are they fun the way a board game is? I mean, are, are you standing around giggling, moving pieces around, trying to defeat the other team? Or <laughs> is there a sense of seriousness among the participants? Well, look, I'm sure there are people in the crowd who were who are treating it like a, a game, but most people, uh, I think, have taken to this quite seriously. Um, and I think they sort of treat this as a way to anticipate future counter moves. Um, and, you know, this is like a very real situation where potentially human lives are at stake. So I think generally it's quite a somber exercise. Yeah. And and how about the outcome? I mean, this is it, it is a game, of course, but as you say, it's based in a potentially catastrophic real world event. I mean, in this scenario that you explored, were the Taiwanese able to rebuff uh, an attack from, <laughs> let's just say, from the Chinese army? Yeah, well, TBD on that. Uh, but okay. I think the, the overall assumption was that uh, we'd have resolute US support and that other allies would come and support and help, um, and that China would perhaps mount even like an amphibious attack on the flatter western shore of Taiwan, right? So those are based on lots of different assumptions. Uh, but the outcome was that we saw that probably China would have lots of less risky options to co-op Taiwan, like, for example, cutting off the island's um, submarine cables or energy supplies or maybe even infiltrating Taiwan um, politically, mm. which I think some have called the quote-unquote anaconda strategy, <laughs> which always reminds me of Nicki Minaj. But oh I think, you know, you get the idea, <laughs> sort of just infiltrating with disinfo, misinfo, which, of course, Taiwan is a huge target for and persuading people's opinions that way. These are games that happen all the time in you know the capitals in question washington dc and, and in beijing yeah why was it important i mean you've you've pointed this out on our to our team just why was it important to do this in Taipei? Right. Well, you know, when, often when folks talk about the quote-unquote Taiwan issue, they often focus on the U.S.-China angle, right? And the conversation right. kind of happens above Taiwan, and it can end up neglecting Taiwanese voices. So I think this particular incident or this war game was really important and was a way to hear those Taiwanese voices directly um, who, you know, were able to express everything that they are concerned with from their perspective, ranging from humanitarian concerns to, like, will the hospitals have enough blood bank supplies? to thinking about what would businesses do in terms of international shipping. So those are the kind of perspectives that I think sometimes when you're looking at it from the US-China umbrella, often we don't drill down into those details um, and think about the actual parties who would be impacted more mm. directly. And Helen, not many of us will have the privilege of, of visiting Taiwan, at least not anytime soon. What was it like there? I mean, who were, Tell us about some of the, the people that you met along the way. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the coolest person I met was this guy who brought hip hop to Taiwan, like back in the 80s. And uh, actually, there's a huge story about Taiwanese hip hop and how, you know, the geopolitical elements of it and the storytelling that we can save for another day. Uh, but that was a really great way of kind of like surfacing Taiwanese voices in the 80s and 90s um, during a time when, the, when Taiwan was going through such huge social and economic upheaval during the Asian financial crisis. And so Taiwanese hip hop really took off as a way of 
of giving voice to this, you know, academic rap, quote unquote. Uh, but anyway, we I I, I digress. Uh, the people I met there look really they were really diverse, right? There's a whole bunch of really young people in Taiwan who have had a really great life um, and enjoy the sort of economic prosperity of the island. But I think you know, in terms of how they feel about motivation levels in terms of participating in war, I think one line that I want to share is that uh, one of the participants who were in the war game, he had shared um, this line with me, which was, if you ask young Taiwanese to fight for the country, they might. But if you ask them to fight for their Uber Eats, then they definitely will. So <laughs> I think that sort of, you know, gives you an idea of what uh, what some of the, the younger demographics um, thinking is. But I will say there's a huge diversity of voices, um, ways of thinking, and it's a really dynamic and cultural place and stunningly beautiful, actually. I mean, over, I think, 80% of the eastern shore of Taiwan is really mountainous. And similar to, uh, as I mentioned to some of you, the uh, studio Ghibli's Spirited Way was based on its its town in the northeastern part of the island, and it was stunningly beautiful with high mountains and temples and sort of winding streets. And you forget that you know so much of the island is is actually very green and um, and and really lovely. So it's actually really enjoyed the hikes there. Motivation to get there. Well, Helen, that is a very cool experience. Jealousy from from me and I know from all of our listeners. So thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you, Ethan. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, as you may have heard, Helen recapped her trip to Taiwan in even greater detail in today's International Intrigue newsletter. So if you want to hear more of her takeaways from her time in Taipei, make sure to check it out. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Tuesday.